0: in the denomination nationwide and especially in our district. And Lord, I pray that we can come to understand what one another thinks in our district, or at least those who have a differing view. And as we, in the next three weeks, unpack the three major views of the millennium, Lord, help us to understand and look at Scripture and be like the Bereans and search these things on our own to come with the conviction that you give us and direct our church for the future. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. I guess you can be the hander-outer, right, Mike? So So how many? One, two, three, four. So I think we have enough copies, so but if we don't we may have to go to one per per family
1: one per family
0: is good well i have 27 copies in there so okay so we have uh my fear in doing this is that there's so much material that you know we we I had to try to distill into what the essence of each position is. And this one is premillennialism. and so you will be most familiar with that if you've been around um, Baptist evangelical kind of churches because this is the major view. Uh, if, you've lo- if you've read uh, books by Tim LaHaye and some of those um, kind of things, talk a little bit about this, although... Uh, they liked uh, Tim LaHaye, and that Left Behind series was really about the tribulation and the rapture and all that type of stuff. And we aren't going to be going into that, do we? Actually, have an extra one. One extra. One extra. Well, that'll be for we'll reward our latecomer. Okay. So. um... So we can uh, try to do. We'll kind of do some questions along the way, but we'll see how time goes. And I'd love to have a whole bunch of time to talk and and uh, interact. But this one, um, this one, like I said, will be most familiar to you. When we get to all millennialism next week, you might find it less familiar, as I I did when I went to Dallas Seminary. They didn't. They, we probably had ten minutes if we were lucky on any other position of the millennium. So I had to do a lot of this figuring it out of how they look at things. I'm a premillennialist, let me say that also at the beginning, even though by next week or the week after that, trying to give you an objective point of view, you may think I'm one of the others, but I'm not. (laughs) Don't panic. Here's the thing, though, is that we have to, as a church, make a commitment to a doctrinal statement. We currently have the EFCA 1950 version. There's a 2008 version which took the word imminent out but we have imminent in. And now in the 2019, they've taken the word premillennial out and put glorious return. So instead of our statement saying uh, premillennial and, and imminent, it says glorious return. And so you'll maybe understand a little more of the implications of that in a few more weeks. So let's kind of jump in. You see on your uh, your chart and we'll have the scriptures. I know that Don lets you participate, and I'm going to be less participative than Dr. Don because we have so much to cover. So I'm going to have the scriptures up on the, on the screen, but I would encourage you to look these up and study these on your own. But just to give you a little chart, you see on here, this gives you a timeline. The increasing apostasy, which we share in common with millennialism, but do not share in common with postmillennialism. Christ returns, okay, now there's tribulation and rapture, you can put that before Christ returns in the pre-millennial view, and then the millennium, and then a final judgment. So let me just kind of say that the crux of the debate is on Revelation 20. So we'll be there for a little while talking about that, but not at first. First I want to go back and say that What makes this such a big debated topic and gets people, some of them have, in our district, are very upset. I think Lee, uh, who did our roof, by the way, this week, and he came about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I drove by and he was sweltering, trying to get hydrated uh, because it was so hot on that roof. He says, I can't even be up there. I have to come back at 5. So he said eight churches are considering leaving in our denomination, in our district. The Northern Mountain District. So, not, and just because of a, a Revelation 20 says this, but it also has to do with how do you interpret scripture? And so I wrote on that, under that little chart, something that is really key and very central in this whole thing. And that is that we believe in a way of looking and interpreting scripture that's called, you know, the literal, grammatical, historical method. And that it doesn't say that you can't have symbols. It doesn't say that you can't have poetry. It does say that you take the most um, obvious meaning, the most common meaning first to look at. And you look back at what did this mean to the people in the era when it was written. If it was Old Testament, the people of that getting Isaiah's prophecy, let's say the one we love at Christmas, A virgin shall be with child. How did they understand that? What was their reaction to that prophecy? We know what it means looking from the virgin birth from Jesus' point of view. They didn't necessarily have all that information. So how did they look at it? That's the historical context. We look at the grammatical context and the context within the book of the Bible. And that literal becomes the key phrase here because millennialism and postmillennialism are going to take, now notice this, the prophetic literature called the apocalyptic literature and they are going to say that it is symbolic. Okay, you can't debate them yet, Daniel, until you hear their point of view, okay? And that is the key in all of this debate, okay? Is how do we interpret scripture? And I believe that there are people that feel in our denomination that um, they're, with this changing of, of taking out premillennialism, we're also opening the door to different ways of interpreting Scripture. So what might else could happen later? But we'll talk about that especially next week. But no, this is based on a literal, grammatical, historical, if you love the word hermeneutic, just means interpreting Scripture. Okay? So any questions on that foundational point that 's going and that 's going to like I said be the crux point no no question no none <laughs> yeah again it, literal grammatical historical does not eliminate symbols, allegories, the parables were allegorical, right, and so you can 't if you took something you know like like um, the Lazarus looking, the guy in heaven looking at Lazarus and all that. I mean, we didn't take that, did this literally happen? I guess it could have, but they said, okay, this was a allegory of what heaven might be like. It didn't take it absolutely literal. When, when Psalm says that God hides us under the pinions of his wings, it does not mean God is a chicken, okay? So, that is a symbolic thing. And so, the literal, grammatical, historical method, which, by the way, I'll just say now, most of the, the amillennialists that we're going to look at are not a bunch of, there are liberal churches that believe this in denominations. There are some people more conservative in how they handle scripture than we do that believe in amillennialism. So, it all becomes what's symbolic, what's not. Okay. And by the way, if you want to look up one of those this week to get ready for next week, a guy named Sam Storms is the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. A big deal, inerrancy, total supporter in all of this. He's reformed in his theology. And so, what that means um, is that they sometimes, they, reformed theology is millennial in its viewpoint, but it's extremely the truth and inspiration and authority and inerrancy of Scripture. So they're, 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 we're not talking about we're going after First Unitarian Church here in you know, our millennialism, although they may have some of that. They probably don't even have even that, but they're Unitarian. Okay, so let's look into some of this, and uh, remember we can have symbols. Oh, sorry, Dan. We do currently
2: reside underneath the 1950s.
0: Yes, we do. The, yeah, in the ours. Correct. We, but we still have to decide, do we want to stick with the 1950 or do we want to adopt the 2019? We probably aren't going to stop, at the 2008 would...
2: But it does open up a whole can of worms of functioning underneath that. that
0: right. Dimension. But we'll, that will be a different discussion in these three weeks. And
2: then also, sandstorms does function in the Gospel Coalition, which is a
0: local group. Well, I maybe mean, it's a national group. Yeah. But he's from Oklahoma, so it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, ETS is Evangelical Theological Society. Okay, so first let's kind of look at what, and, and again, the crux of the passage that we'll be looking at is Revelation 20 symbolic or not because the millennium as a name of millennium means thousand year is only in Revelation 20, not a fact lost on them. So we go back to the Old Testament as a premillennialist, and we say, but it's also in the Old Testament when you look at all of those those passages that looked forward and some of them clearly have not been fulfilled in our time. So we're going to look at some of those. One of those is in Isaiah 2. So this is under your heading number one. The Old Testament predicts a golden age of peace and prosperity under God's rule. And by the way, OT stands for Old Testament under your outline in case you're confused. All right, so on the, sc- on the screen, in the last days, and that's another key phrase to remember, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Okay, does it sound like that's been fulfilled yet? Okay, so if you, it's not literally fulfilled since Isaiah wrote this then it's either going to be literally fulfilled in the future or it's symbolically fulfilled somehow else. Many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Okay, well, pretty obviously that's not been fulfilled, right? So, is it literal or is it symbolic? That will be how you would get in a discussion with a a amillennialist or a postmillennialist. Okay, Isaiah 65. Maybe we can save my voice if who'd like to read that from the screen. I, behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but for a few days,
1: or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The
0: lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Okay. All right. So now, here becomes one of the debates on this one, is that you get into this point where there's a new heaven and new earth. Now, is this a reference to the millennium of chapter Revelation 20? Or is this a reference to the new heaven and new earth of Revelation 21? And so some amillennialists will say a lot of these things that you, a millennialist, are putting in that thousand-year period really apply to the new earth that God will create. And so they they would say, see, it will be literally fulfilled, but not in a thousand-year kingdom. So we have that. But, you know, here's what it's saying, a new heaven and a new earth. All right. So Jewish, the Jewish literature, as you know, when Jesus came, they wanted to make him king. They wanted to make him the political, literal king on earth. That was one of the big pushes that Jesus had, was, was ha- having to push back against, is that he was setting up a spiritual kingdom, not a literal, physical kingdom, we believe, yet. Right? And so they obviously weren't looking for some spiritually fulfilled in heaven kind of kingdom if they were Jewish. For centuries, they read the Old Testament, they took these promises very literally, that this would be a physical kingdom on earth where God would reign, and at that time when Jesus was functioning with his ministry, Rome was very oppressive, right? They'd conquered the world, they were sitting all fat and happy, and so this was a very attractive option for the Israelite people at this time. And so Jewish literature and the leaders expected that. Also, you'll see in letter D on your outline, Jesus announced that the kingdom is near. Here's some of the words he used. Here, the kingdom is among you. The kingdom is at hand, okay? These are not like, up in heaven, it's like, it's right here among you. It's literal. Jesus presented his kingdom, which was himself, obviously, as a literal thing, not as some spiritual thing that was going on symbolically somewhere else or in heaven, okay? So, when Jesus preached that, they, they heard those words as, the kingdom is going to be in any time, on earth physically, they misinterpret it by saying, Oh great, it's a political kingdom. You know, we'll overthrow Rome, their armies will be crushed, you know, Messiah will come on the on the white horse. I don't, there's probably a white horse in the Old Testament, somewhere where Messiah will overthrow them, right? That's what they're hearing. But they wanted it right then, right now, and that was their misinterpretation of that. So also some say, well you never hear the epistles The book of Acts isn't talking about all this kind of literal millennium and literal kingdom. Why didn't they? Well, they were going off into the world. They assumed, this is the argument pre-millennials will use, they assumed that this people, everybody's expecting a literal kingdom. So we're not going to preach about a literal kingdom. We're going to preach about what's more foundational, which is how do you get into the kingdom in the first place? You have to know Jesus Christ. That is your entrance. That is your way of getting in. So... They needed to know about Messiah, not Messiah's kingdom because that was already invested in Jewish literature and in Jewish thought, okay? Questions so far? It's so well explained that you just all completely understand it. Probably not. Okay, now we'll look in First Corinthians 15 and this is also a debated passage because does God's plan proceed in steps or, which you see on the screen highlighted, the then, is the then mean that this will be this era, then there will be another era, which is a millennium, and then this little thing will happen, this resurrection, judgment will happen. What do these thens mean? So who'd like to read that passage on the screen? Dr. Don. Just as everyone dies because we all belong
1: to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given a new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, and all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler in their authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is
0: death. Okay? So, verse 24, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, for he must reign until he's put all these enemies under, subjected to his feet. Now, we look at that, at that verse in yellow, the last part of 24, and say... You know, it's going to be a time of putting the enemies under subjection. It isn't just going to be Armageddon. It's going to be a whole time in the millennium in which he reigns, and then all, you know, every tongue will confess and kind of thing will happen. Not just in some quick all over in in an instant, but, you know, very, very short period of time, a day, less than a day, whatever Armageddon ends up lasting. So Christ reigns for a span of time, and then finally will destroy death. So one of the problems in saying that the millennium and the new earth are the same thing is that in the new earth, you know, are people going to die? Because it does say they can die in the millennium from what we read, doesn't it? There's that implication. If you're 100 years old and you die, then you're going to be considered dying like a teenager. And so if death has been conquered and vanquished at this new heaven and new earth, then how is it that people are dying? Okay, so there's an issue there. You can also, this isn't in your notes, they're supposedly going to be renewing of the sacrifices on the Temple Mount. Well, if you're going to sacrifice something, you're going to kill it. So again, how is death reigning? And so we believe as premillennialists, this has to take place in a earthly kingdom. And, and because there will be, as we'll find out, a final rebellion after not just Armageddon and a thousand years and then another final rebellion, some of this stuff can't be fulfilled in a new earth. That's in Revelation 21. Okay. Questions on point number two.
2: Well, I just heard that as an argument. Kind of, let I me mean, see, see if I got it right. That, you know, one of their arguments is that if you believe in the millennial, then you believe that there will be death in a perfect kingdom. And during the millennial reign, when Christ is here and sin is, I mean, Satan is bound, so are you living in a a sin-free environment where, but yet you're going to still
0: have death? Right, so, is the millennium perfect? How can there be death? How can there be sin if it's perfect? But it isn't perfect. I don't think it says it's perfect in the same way the new heaven and new earth will be perfect. Because you're going to have a final rebellion after the end of that thousand years, so there's obviously sin. That's going to function, not every person, I mean, there will be people who at least at the end won 't believe because they 're going to rebel. Dr. Don a choice, a, choice. Yes. a choice. yes, like yes, I believe they will still have a choice in the millennium. they won 't be forced to to worship God. God has never been into force to worship that 's why he gave us a free will.. <laughs> Another
2: thought is, uh, you know, I think this whole millennial thing comes down to a couple of different things, but, uh, you know, when he says that we're guilty, if you refuse Christ, and in order to prove that it's our hearts that are evil and wicked, you have to have Satan bound for God. I mean, as we stand, as, as the lost people stand before the judgment seat and give an account. They're not going to have an excuse. Right now, they kind of have an excuse because the devil made me do it, you know, or the evil and But at that time, Satan is bound, and it's really going to still reveal the heart of man that is at enemy with God.
0: Okay, so Satan will be bound. There will be, so you, you can't have any blaming of Satan during the millennium of he tricked and deceived me. Right. Not that that is really a very effective defense according to Scripture now with satan but satan being bound that's another little good talking point because what does that mean because it means different to a premillennialist than an amillennialist and a postmillennialist so revelation 20 verses 1 through 3 so this is there in this um let's see 7 or 8 verses 6 or 7 times i forget there's a a counted, uh, the word thousand occurs six or seven times, a whole bunch of times, okay? So this is the crux point. Now, just to set the scene, Revelation 19 has been, Armageddon has just finished, okay? So, and also let me give you a little warning. When we get to amillennialism, they aren't going to see this as a chronological sequential thing because they're going to say, Revelation often will tell you something and it might be something that's already happened, And then they're going to tell you something that will happen, but then they're going to go back and tell you something that happened, and it it goes thematic. It doesn't always go chronological, and that's how they're going to get into Revelation 20, is it's not, okay, first we had Armageddon, now we're going to have a millennium. We're going to have, oh, this is looking back at what Christ has already done for us and is doing for us currently in heaven. And uh, so that will be a common point of view. But on the premillennialist point of view, this is a chronological... Book. We agree as premillennialists that it that, that looks back at some things in the book of Revelation, but this is not one of the places that does that. This is clearly, literally, grammatically, Revelation 20 follows in time, Revelation 19. So who would like to read Revelation 20 verses one through three from the screen? The, uh, Peggy. Then I saw an angel
1: coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the, bot- into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years <clears throat> were ended, and that he must be released for a little while. Revelation 21 through 3.
0: Okay, thank you. Okay, now, you have a couple of things here. First, is this a chronological thing? We believe, yes, as a premillennialist. Uh, what does the word thousand mean in here? Because not only is it going to be twice here, it's going to occur three times in verses four through six. So now we have five, and I think there's one more after that. And then, what does it mean to bind Satan. That's going to be a debated point. Now, we would look at literally, grammatically, this means that he is restrained. The amillennialists are going to say, no, it means he's partially restrained. (laughs) I'm just looking at Daniel. He's just like, what in the heck is wrong with these people? He, they're going to say he's partially restrained, and, and I'm already getting into next week's, but what that means is he will no longer be able to deceive the nations as a whole as he did in the Old Testament time. That Jesus' victory, even though, like us, we say it's not completely applied, but he will no longer, he can still um, deceive individuals, just can't deceive a whole nation. So this way the gospel can go out. So literally, when you look at that, what does that word holding in his hand a key to a pit, a chain, a bound, that word bound especially, the pit is shut, sealed. Okay, I mean, this is pretty strong language here. And for me personally, this is one of, one of the points why amillennialism, I struggle with it, is that, you know, you're kind of trying to shape the text to your viewpoint rather than letting the text speak for itself. Okay, so that's part of That's part of that problem. Satan is completely restrained, we believe, for a thousand years. Again, those words that we use. So this is a picture of total restraint, not partial restraint. He has no influence, no ability. Um, And that's a change from Revelation 20. There's a lot of deceiving of the nations that's going on. And so, you know, what did that mean? to an amillennialist if back in Revelation 12 it's saying that he was deceiving the nations but he's supposed to be in their system bound. How is that? How is he bound and yet doing all this deceiving of the nations? And they'll answer as well at the very end before where it says Satan is let loose. This is the letting loose. It's during the tribulation. Okay? All right. Any questions about the binding of Satan? In our whirlwind through premillennialism, Teresa. I'm just with the word bound, I don't see any wiggle room on binding
2: because they were pretty good in those days about binding people.
0: Yeah. Okay. So she's saying, "What is? Where's the wiggle in bound?" But remember, we're in a whole book that. What's the other name for the Book of Revelation? It's called the. Starts with an A. Apocalypse. So they're saying the apocalyptic literature which is also in Old Testament has symbolic and the whole thing is symbolic therefore you you can't take all of the words in the book of Revelation and make everyone literal or even you know you you have to kind of look and see what really fits with the rest of scripture yes Teresa <laughs> Well, again, the context, you know, hide us under the pinion of his wings. Is God a chicken? Is he not a chicken? How can you say that? So we, we, we take symbolism and we say we believe it's symbolism because saying God God has wings, literal wings is absurd. And they're saying, but they're not saying this is absurd. They're saying is it does not fit with with the rest of scripture. First of all, it's not anywhere else in scripture. And second, that there are other scriptures that, will give you the common, plain meaning that aren't in the book of Revelation. Larry. I'm just looking at what it says here. uh, Satan is not going to go into the bottomless pit all by himself. He's not going to say, you're just going to go and he he does it. You're going to have to have some type of restraint to to get him there. And so since they did throw him into the the pit, to me, that means he had had to be bound to start with. Were tied up in some way that we could not get loose. So to say that he still had influence in that thousand-year reign, I, I don't see it in this scripture whatsoever. Yeah, yeah and the, and that's one that's one of the big debated points. I I have, to, I have to move on, Teresa. Let me catch it at the end. So write down your question if you have it. And all right, so let's go to Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6. Who'd like to read that?
1: Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed during the thousand years. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands.
0: Okay, and by the way, that during the thousand years up there in verse four is not in the text. That was a note to myself. I forgot to take it out when I put it on your screen. So that's not another occurrence of a thousand. Okay, so now this again, this revelation is the crux of the debate. And so what we believe is literally what it says, the sequence of how things will happen. Okay, so uh, first of all, you have to de- discuss, we're talking about those who have been martyred. Is it only the martyred who are going to function in this role? Well, not even premillennialists all agree exactly on what that means. Those who had been beheaded for Jesus hadn't worshipped the beast, so we're, in our scheme, talking about tribulation martyrs, right? And so, um, there they have a special thing. It says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This came to life is the key there, that's the the resurrection idea, it isn't the actual word resurrection, but it, it says they came to life, the rest of the dead did not come to life, exact same Greek word, until after the thousand years were ended, and this is the first resurrection, so we know now we aren't talking about some other, what does it mean to come to life, but that is the debate, we think it means that they were in some transitional state, and they were resurrected, where they were united with their glorified body, and they rest, uh, they reside and reign in heaven. But that's not what the amillennialists are going to say. They're going to make it into a spiritual resurrection. We believe, as a premillennialist, this is exactly what it says. It's a physical, bodily resurrection for this group of people. Gary. Right.
1: Well, we have ESV. I don't know what that is. But verse four in ours says
0: a thousand years. Yeah. No, he does it?
1: Life and reigned with Christ for
0: thousand years. Right. On the ESV. In the ESV, okay. Some some of the the debate was whether these guys how much authority will they reign, in, you know, after the millennium and and such. So it was just just a millennial kind of thing. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's not a key point in this. The idea is what kind of a resurrection are we talking about? In, in verse four and in verse five. And so what you're going to have for a uh, premillennialist is two physical resurrection because they are the exact same word. And it says it's a second death. What kind of, you know, death are we talking about? There's a physical death and then there is a second death that scripture talks about in Romans, which is spiritual separation from God. Okay. So all of a sudden now in an all millennialist point of view, you're mixing in spiritual and physical. Well, no, this time it doesn't mean that. It means spiritual resurrection. But no, no, that one is a physical death. But that's a spiritual death. So, And that's kind of how, you know, are kind of jumping back and forth between are we physical or are we spiritual? Okay, so we believe as a, in a premillennialist point of view that this is a physical resurrection that will come and then those people will reign physically with Christ in a body during the millennium the rest of us will be in heaven, still spiritually, but then there at the end of that time then then there will be another resurrection we believe for the unsaved. Okay? Questions?
2: So just to make it clear for me the rapture of the church. The church is taken off here. The thousand year millennial reign is happening.
0: Those saints that are dying during this thousand year millennial millennial reign are the ones we're we're talking about? Well, that, that's okay. Most premillennialists expand the view not just to the martyrs of the tribulation, but also martyrs of all time, and also really anyone who is is—is is dead, but they were a believer that all of those people will be. So they would be like the government that's reigning with Christ on the earth
1: where there's still sin, Satan.
0: Yes. Right. Right. So some some group of believers, but not all believers will reign in the millennium. Again, that's why it's debated, which are how literal are you going to make that? Is it just the martyrs in the tribulation? Okay? And then there will be pe- part of the big debate that millennialism throws back on premillennialism. Okay, if you have Armageddon, first you've had you've raptured all the believers, so they're in heaven. And then you've destroyed all the unbelievers who in the world populates the millennium. But again, the answer is not every soul on earth is killed in that Armageddon battle and some live to go on into the millennium and then there will have to be people who will reign with Christ and they believe it will be these particular folks and some put the 144,000. Yeah, children will be born because it says so in the other, the other things. So anyway, the main point to remember here is... You can't switch, according to the premillennial point of view, you can't make them different kinds of resurrections when they're the exact same word. You're stretching the meaning. You're not doing good grammatical work there. So physical resurrection, to go reign in the millennium, to be alive, okay? And then in point C, you have resurrection of the good and evil before the millennium, but also after. There's additional resurrection. So there's more, more than one day of the Lord, by the way. Okay, so we have this is the day of the Lord can like be an era. Uh, Peter in Acts chapter 2, which we'll talk about next week, referred to this is the last time, the day of the Lord. And so you you, you have, in that case, a double or triple fulfillment. So let's look at John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29 when we're talking about this whole idea of resurrection, who'd like to read that one?
1: Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment.
2: John 5.
0: Okay, now we'll look again at this next week from a different point of view. But this is saying that there are literal, physical resurrections, okay, that will happen. And there's more than one. It's not all one at one. That's going to be the point. It's, hey, look, John 5, Jesus said there's one resurrection, but we believe there's more than one. So now we get into an exegetical argument. Okay, point number four, this was the view, premillennialism was the view held by most early Christians and there's a bunch of names like Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and such Uh, and in the Reformation Luther and Calvin were not premillennialists they were all millennialists, by the way but there was a group that was premillennial and that was the Anabaptists who if we trace some of our heritage it does go back to that movement now there is one other thing on your outline and we won't necessarily get into every little point of this so the, the Israel becomes a key point. What happens to them? Right? So, in classic premillennialism in the first few centuries until the 400s, when Augustine comes along, the premillennialist point of view didn't really talk about Israel. But in the 1800s, a guy named Darby, John Darby in 1830, reintroduced millennialism and he put some differences in. This is where this big word dispensational comes in. Dispensationalism isn't the key that you have to believe that God dealt with man in different ways at different eras. That's not really the key point here. But it did have the fact that there would be a fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies to Israel. Okay? And that that would happen literally on the earth because God promised that it would be on the earth. And so this became a very well articulated plan because all of us have probably heard it. And, and most of us, if not all of us, would tip toward that point of view um, that Israel will have their the promises fulfilled. Because this is the version of premillennialism that we've been taught, that I've been taught uh, Dallas Theological Seminary is the champion of dispensational uh, dispensationalism, which includes this kind of view of premillennialism, and so this is the one of the most popular view in the last 150 years. But in history, it has not been uh, the most popular view. So we believe in a literal fulfillment of those promises. Here's a quick survey. Abrahamic covenant. God said in Genesis two, "I'll make you a great nation. I'll give you this land." Right? Do y'all remember that? Um, and it said in, in Genesis fifteen eighteen, Naomi. If we can skip to 15, 18, Oh, there it is. Okay. On that day, the Lord made a covenant, saying, "To your offspring, I give this land." Now, notice the bounds of those land of that land. Has Israel ever? gone from the Nile to the Euphrates in their kingdom, no. So we believe this was, and, and the Abrahamic covenant, as well as the next two I'm going to hit real quick, were unconditional covenants, meaning they weren't based on whether Israel obeyed the law or not. And so these, this was given to Abraham before the law, therefore um, it's part of the promise that's yet to be fulfilled. It's everlasting in Genesis 17:18. And then 2 Samuel 7 also talks about a Davidic covenant. Yeah, there we are. Notice verse 16, your house and kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, a millennial say, yeah, we believe that one. Jesus fulfills that. And we agree, but we see it as a earthly fulfillment. The new covenant you can look up in Jeremiah 31 also was unconditional. And then all Israel, point D, will be saved before Jesus returns. So Romans 11. Um, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, not just those who believe in Jesus, like right now, before all this happens, but all Israel will believe in Jesus one day. All Israel will be converted, okay? And Romans 11. So this is also a big problem passage for the amillennial view. How do you interpret that? Okay, so just some objections. Number seven, there is no direct biblical reference to thousand-year millennium outside Revelation 20, okay? That's a big talking point for uh, amillennialism. they say that we interpret Old Testament prophecies too rigidly literal and wooden. We ignore symbolism, we ignore other scripture, and so <laughs> um, and so we'll talk more about that next week. Jesus' words in, in John eighteen says the nature of his kingdom is spiritual, it's not a physical battle. Now here's what I think number D, your letter D. The key idea in here is that the church becomes a parenthesis in God's main plan for Israel. I think, personally, I think this is a big driving force for an amillennial, postmillennial point of view. Is that like, well, then the church isn't all that important, is it? It's just a parenthesis. It's like, Israel, Old Testament, thousands of years, and we have a couple thousand or so years of a church age and main who knows how long it will be, but it was a whole lot longer in the Old Testament, right? And now it's going to go back to that for another thousand years for Israel, and so the church kind of gets relegated to second-class stepchild status. E, John restated the same end-time framework in a different way, not revealing a whole new plan. We'll talk about that. We've already mentioned F, who goes into the millennium. Okay, on G, on the day of the Lord, the world will be destroyed. Now, this new heaven and new earth, the, the fire will, will destroy. Okay, what does that mean then? if When Christ says, I'm going to come and the heavens will be rolled back as a scroll and all of that stuff will happen, then we're saying that happens after the millennium, but they're saying, no, it happened, Christ said it would happen when he came back after his second coming. Um, okay so those are some of the things that you have to, to work with and, and such so we're kind of out of time so one quick question yeah what is this recreation of the earth yeah. yeah we sing hymns by the way that talk about that by the way that the burning up of the world, the recreating. It's not like it's going to turn into a cinder and start all over, but there's some kind of a recreation, a cleansing. So, okay. Gary, will you pray? Got to go. Yes, would you pray for us, please?
1: Again, Lord, we thank you for your goodness and for the... Thoughts today. We thank you that you're always present, you're always with us. Thank you how you influence us in our daily lives. So, as we uh, learn more about things to come, bless our time, may we learn more. May these things be more relevant. And most of all, may our witness and our sharing in life with this community. Before you
0: only, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I hope you all will come back for all millennialism so you can understand where our brothers and sisters in Christ are coming from. And we can have a good dialogue.